We've spent the last five weeks exploring the teachings of the New Testament that emphasize and call us as Christians to live a, a life of nonviolence and peace. We're called to be peacemakers in a world that is full of violence. I've been emphasizing how dominant this teaching is within the entire New Testament, starting with Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, then looking at how Jesus lived and taught his disciples. And it, it becomes actually glaringly obvious to me that Jesus calls each of us to love our enemies, to offer forgiveness instead of vengeance, and to live at peace with everyone. The narratives that we've looked at throughout this series have just actually kind of grazed the surface of how much Jesus and the New Testament writers stress that peace is how we are called to live that we are called to step into difficult situations in order to help bring reconciliation to whatever challenges come our way. You see, the church should actually be leading the way at stepping into challenges in our world with the intent of bringing peace and reconciliation to a world that's full of violence. I think it's obvious that Jesus doesn't want Christians to take another person's life. He doesn't want us to kill. However, there are many in the church today who would argue with that statement. Some believe that God himself at times allows us to kill another human being when the act is justifiable. They call this actually the just war theory. That Christians can willingly take up arms and fight against another human being and take their life simply because we are being obedient to the authorities or we're protecting our own lives or our democracy. Now, I would contend that this just doesn't seem to line up with the teachings of Jesus. And since Jesus fully reveals God to us in human form, I think we need to take his examples and teachings very serious. As I showed you last week, the early church took this very serious. You see, in the entire book of Acts, you never see any Christian respond to violence with violence. You never see the early Christians counter persecution with fighting back. Yet many of them actually lost their lives. Now, that being said, I do recognize how challenging of a concept a nonviolent peacemaking life can be. It gets confusing even when we look at the entire narrative of the Bible. Like if you look in the Old Testament, it would often appear that God endorses violence. Yet one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. That's interesting, isn't it? He commands us not to take another human being's life. Yet all through scripture and church history, we see all kinds of violence. Like, is God himself confused about this subject? Does he, does he contradict himself and what he's trying to teach us and communicate to us? I would say in no way does God contradict himself and that he's constantly or consistently through his son showing us that his children are peacemakers, not warriors. After all, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. So why does this get so confusing? Why do some scholars argue for a just war theory and others teach what I've been teaching you about peace? Why, like, are, are we not reading the same Bible? You know, some critics of the concept of being called to live a nonviolent peacemaking life, they actually use passages just like I have to you to justify their theory that war and violence is actually endorsed by Jesus. 
Now, that's interesting to me, and so I've spent a considerable amount of time exploring this conundrum because I know we're reading the same Bible, but we seem to be coming to kind of different conclusions. So today, I want to explore two passages that are commonly used to counter the teaching of peacemaking that I've been giving you. But before we get into those passages, I want to point out something that I actually really hope you've noticed over the past five weeks. Not only have I been presenting to you the passages that support my understanding of peacemaking, I've also been pointing out some challenges on how we use and how we read our Bibles. Now, I I hope you caught on to this because this is really important because many in the church today kind of prop up the Bible and use passages as clobber passages in a way that I don't think was ever meant to be. And when you do this, it changes actually how you read and interpret scripture. So with that being said, let's look at the most used passage in the New Testament that is quoted and used as proof that Jesus actually endorses violence. In fact, many who use this passage would say that Jesus is actually encouraging us to fight. So grab your Bible and let's open it to Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, a very simple verse that I think is going to kind of blow your mind says this. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. Oh, wait a minute. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. Doesn't that sound different than what I've been teaching? Now, listen to what he says. He says, I came not to bring peace but a sword. Like, wow, like, where did that come from, right? After all of the passages that I've walked us through about how Jesus came to bring peace and he calls us and how he calls us to live peacemaking lives, now what do we do? We have one glaring passage that that someone can look up and use to say the opposite of what I've been teaching you. So what do we do with this? Well, it has to do with how we use and read our Bibles. Many of us, not all of us, but many of us have been taught for years to memorize scripture passages so that we can use them when we need answers to difficult questions, specifically when we're defending our faith. The the problem is, is we never see the early church or Jesus use scripture that way. Now, I'm not saying there's a problem with memorizing scripture, but we don't see them using it where they memorize individual passages in order to defend something. They never defend anything by quoting one individual passage. When they do quote scripture, they always use the passage within the context of the narrative that they're sharing it in. And often it's more than one verse to help bring clarity. The concept of defending our faith and quoting the Bible passages as a way to defend our point has actually only kind of been a thing since the Reformation. The first hundred years of the church, they just didn't use the writings of the New Testament that way at all. You see, when a church would receive a letter from Paul or a gospel account from like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they would read the entire letter to the church from start to finish. Like that letter would be their sermon. They never just opened a letter and read a passage or two in order to know what Paul was trying to say or communicate. They would actually read the whole thing. And somewhere along the way, 
we started to actually do that, isolate these individual passages. And it's created a lot of problems in the church today. So when we come across a passage like this in Matthew, there are a few things that we need to do first. Firstly, we need to ask the question, what is going on here? Because this one statement by Jesus seems to contradict a lot of other statements that he makes, like all the statements that I've shown you up to this point. So does this one passage like wipe out everything that I've taught to you about peace? Well, actually, I don't think it does at all. We have to approach the passage with the assumption that there must be something else going on here because this passage seems drastically different than others that we've read. So now it's time to let Scripture help us to interpret Scripture. So first, you have to read the entire book to even know that the passage seems out of character for Jesus. Then you need to go to other parallel passages in the Bible. Many of our Bibles have that, a little column down the center where there's parallel passages. Well, they're important to use. So we have to turn to other parallel passages. So in this case, the Gospel of Luke has a similar passage. So Luke chapter 12 is the, one of the parallel passages for this verse. Now listen very carefully to what Luke says. It reads like this in Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 51. Do you think, this is Jesus speaking again, do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. In verse 52, if we were to keep reading on, so you notice he uses the word divide. In verse 52, he says, from now on, families will split apart three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. Now, it's interesting because, as I pointed out, Luke uses the word divide instead of the word sword, and he goes on to show how households will be divided. Okay, so what are, what's going on here? Well, let's jump back over to Matthew chapter 10 again. If we're to take verse 34 literally and use it as a passage to prove that Jesus endorses violence, then we have to take the passage immediately after it the same. And so if we read Matthew chapter 10 again, verse 34, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Now listen to what verse 35 and 36 says. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household, he says. So if all of this is literal, then not only is Jesus endorsing violence, he also says he's come to divide and break up families. Now, doesn't this seem strange to you? Why would a loving God come to bring the sword, not peace, and break up families? Like, doesn't God value families? You see, folks, there's something more going on here. And so before we use this passage to prove a point, we should probably understand what Jesus is actually communicating to his disciples. And in order to do that, we have to go back and see what started this chapter off in the first place. You see, at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus is preparing his disciples to go on their first missionary journey to preach about the coming of the kingdom of God. 
Now, okay, this information helps us a lot. It's important because Jesus is talking to his disciples as he gets them ready to go out and communicate a message that will not be received with welcome ears by all. You see, remember how the people expected a warrior king? When we read this passage in its context, it becomes quite clear that Jesus' words have nothing to do with his disciples using the sword. Rather, Jesus uses metaphorical language to warn that his followers will experience rejection by family and severe persecution from those who reject his message. Uh, A theologian and brilliant scholar, Richard Hayes, he's a New Testament scholar, he says bluntly, to read this verse in Matthew as a warrant for the use of violence by Christians is to commit an act of extraordinary hermeneutical violence against the text. (laughs) In other words, it's not at all what Jesus is saying. And so if we quote it to justify violence, we've misquoted Jesus and we're communicating something that Jesus never said or did. This is a perfect example of how important context and letting scripture interpret scripture becomes. I know I would never really want to misquote Jesus when I'm trying to share his message. I would rather get his message the way he communicated it. Okay, so let's look at another passage that's often brought up to justify violence. One that most of us will actually be very familiar with. It's actually told in all four of the Gospels, but I think I'm going to read it in the Gospel of John. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, starting at verse 13, this will be a story that's really familiar to you. It says, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifice. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, "Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace." Now, this really familiar passage is actually quite interesting. And only John mentions a whip. The other three Gospels, they don't mention a whip at all. And at first glance, this sure seems like Jesus gets violent in the temple when he sees what they've done to it. As a matter of fact, I've had many Christians use this narrative as an example of Jesus using violence. Therefore, he must endorse us using violence to fight for our cause. But is that really what's going on? First, let's deal with some language issues here. All four Gospels use the Greek word akbalo to describe what Jesus does. In the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, this Greek word is defined to mean to send out without the connotation of force. So this ekbalo means to send out, to send people without the connotation of force. 
Mark uses this word to describe Jesus, Jesus dismissing the mourners before he heals the little girl who dies in Mark chapter 5, verse 40. In Matthew 9, 38, the word is used to speak of the Lord sending more workers into the harvest. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, the same word is used to say that the Spirit has sent Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So obviously, the word that they are all using in the Greek does not carry any connotation of violence. It's actually the opposite. But John uses this word in connection with Jesus using a whip. And and many of our translations seem to say that Jesus used that whip on people as well as on the sheep and the oxen. The problem is that that's not what the Greek text actually says at all. The Good News translation actually gets it right by pointing out the whip was used to drive out the animals, not the people. So again, what's going on here? The question we have to ask is, how could Jesus walk into the temple? You got to ask this question. How could Jesus walk into the temple, violently throw things around and whip people, and then remain there with no ramifications? The only thing that they actually say to him is, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, he says, then show us a sign. Now, that doesn't sound like a response to someone who just violently tried to overtake the temple. Also, if this narrative was violent in nature, don't you think that the temple police, who were literally inside the temple at the time, would have intervened. They would have been aware that it was going on, yet the text goes on to tell us that Jesus stuck around town for the festivals. He actually stuck around the temple for a while, and no one arrested him for violently attempting to take over the temple. Maybe we're reading this story with our own cultural lenses, and we're the ones who force the violence into it. Because most scholars believe that what Jesus did in the temple was simply a brief action of dramatic symbolism. Jesus was making a point, and the people there got the point. But there was no violence. We actually read that into the text. This is another great example of how we struggle to use the Bible the way Jesus wants us to. Instead of a book that we use to to clobber people with by quoting individual texts, Jesus wants us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to communicate the message of the text, the story of how God is working with us to draw humanity back into relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. So whenever there's a theme that dominates the narrative, like the teaching of nonviolence, we can't just go looking for one or two individual texts and say, see, there you go, it's wrong. Jesus does endorse violence. The Bible was never meant to be used this way. As a matter of fact, Scripture is God's Word, the inspired Word of God. It, it's one of the ways that God communicates to us, and it's a living book. It's not just like 2D pages, but more like 3D pages that jump out and they speak directly to us when the Spirit lives in you. We don't use the Bible as a clobber book. Instead, we read it as a way for God and humanity to get to know one another. We read it devotionally and it speaks to us personally. 
But when we teach it, we have to teach it in context. And it's important to allow the Holy Spirit to show us the meaning of the text, the way that God wants to see it, the way Jesus meant it, the way Paul meant it, the way the original authors were inspired to write it. I want to challenge all of you to interact with God's word. Let it to live, let it live and speak into your life, but don't use it to proof text some ideology of who you want God to be. Instead, use it to be transformed by the power of his word. Let it shape you and mold you into the likeness of Jesus. This means we have to get to know Jesus. We have to learn what he taught and how he lived so we can live the life he calls us to, a life of peace so that we can witness to others by sharing God's wonderful grace and love. Jesus teaches peace and modeled love for his enemies because it's the ultimate expression of grace. And it's through grace and faith that we are redeemed and made right with God. He loves us and he's forgiven us no matter what. This is the peace that Jesus leads us to. And it's the peace that we are called to share with the world. Jesus loves you. He's forgiven you and he is empowering you by the power and presence of his spirit to live a nonviolent, enemy-loving peace. I'm going to pass things over to Pastor Tamil so she can walk us through a reading reflection that's from our denomination's confession of faith. And I, I want you to listen to the words and hear the heart of Jesus. 